week in cycling. A history of our wonderful sport for the discerning listener. This week in cycling history in 1983, Giuseppe Soroni won the first of three stage wins on his way to overall victory in the Giro d'Italia. The previous year, Soroni had narrowly beaten Greg LeMond and Sean Kelly on the Goodwood racing circuit to become the world champion. The Italian followed up that win with victory at the Tour of Lombardy, his first win in a monument classic. He then went on to win Milan San Remo in the spring of 1983. He remains the last rider to have won Milan San Remo while wearing the rainbow jersey. So coming into the 1983 Giro, Cerrone had the opportunity to complete the hat-trick of winning Italy's three biggest races all as world champion. Throughout this edition of the Giro, time bonuses of 30, 20 and 10 seconds were awarded for the first three finishers on each stage. Cerrone's main rival for overall victory turned out to be Roberto Vicentini, who was Cerrone's equal in the time trials and his superior in the mountains. But Cerrone's ability to win sprints and finish in the top three on the more transitional stages would ultimately prove decisive. Juan Jose Cobo won last year's Vuelta España, finishing ahead of Team Sky's Chris Froome. Froome had in fact ridden the route of the Spanish Grand Tour faster than Cobo, but the Spaniard won thanks to time bonuses. Some reports at the time claimed that this was the first time that a Grand Tour had been won thanks to time bonuses, but this is not true, for Cerrone did exactly that in 1983. He racked up three stage wins, two second places and three third places throughout the three weeks of racing, which took a total of two minutes and 40 seconds off his actual time. Vicentini, on the other hand, only managed to gain one minute in time bonuses. Consequently, had time bonuses not been awarded to the riders, Vicentini would have won the 1983 Giro d'Italia by 33 seconds. Welcome to this episode 10 of This Week in Cycling History, uh, with me, John Galloway, and my co-host, Killian Kelly. Giuseppe Cerrone, I, I mean, great, great rider. I mean, a Palmares that uh, that speaks for itself. But I was always vaguely amazed that he managed to win any sort of Grand Tour. Yeah, I, I suppose um, in the Giro, more than many other races, I, I suppose the the accusation could be labelled at the organisers that they that they planned the route in favour of the most likely Italian that's going to win it. <laughs> and I think there was. A- a fair bit of that went on when Moser and Cerrone were around. You know, they, they had this great rivalry in the late 70s and early 80s. And they were similar, very similar riders. You know, they could both time trial and win classics. Um, but when when it came to the high mountains, they were never really um, up there with the climbers. And uh, I, I think the roots of those few jiri in, um, in in those years reflect that. And uh, I, I mean, if you look at the results in those years, Cerrone and Moser were always up there. I mean, Moser... I mean, only won one Giro. He, I mean, he won the Giro, which was amazing. But uh, Cerrone won two. But they were they were always kind of up there in the top five. And uh, definitely, um, the 1983 race um, seemed to suit Cerrone. And uh, the time bonus thing is really interesting, especially after what happened in the Vuelta last year. I, I, I don't know where you stand on on time bonuses, whether you're for or against them. Well, for me, I'd rather not see them. But if they're there, then you can't argue if somebody wins using them because they're playing by the rules that everybody's got to play by. So, I mean, talking about last week in the Vuelta, a lot of people were saying that Froome should have won it. But, you know, everybody had the same chances for the bonuses. They're part of the rules, so the winner's the guy who played the game best according to the rules at the time. And that's it, and I think Cerrone certainly did that in, in that year. You know, he, he was winning stages and winning bonuses on stages that Vicentini just just couldn't, you know, and... Um, I, I, I would be of the opposite opinion. I really like the time bonuses. I, I, I think they add a lot. I mean... Yesterday, now that this year's Giro kicked off and Taylor Finney's in the pink jersey. Well, hey. <laughs> yeah, well, hey, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, like, if, if there was, I mean, there are time bonuses in the Giro, but if there wasn't, 
I mean, barring accident, we'd already know that Taylor Finney's still going to be in the jersey at the end of today. But because there's time bonuses, I mean, you never know. I think during the first week they're really important because it gives the sprinters something to go for and it animates the race. I think once you get to the high mountains and that sort of thing, it should just be elapsed time. Yeah, well, I, I, I tend to agree with that. That um, Time bonuses on mountain stages is, is uh, an unnecessary um, penalty to riders who are already losing time because of the mountains. But uh, on, on definitely on flat stages, and like you say, in the opening week. I mean, do, do you remember, we, we so often come back to talking about the 1993 Tour de France, but there was great ding-dong battles between Cipollini and Wilfred Nelson and Johan Museo, and they all swapped the yellow jersey. I mean, if, if there was no time bonuses, Miguel Indrain would have just worn the whole jersey for the whole, or worn the yellow jersey for the whole race. Yeah, and it was a great first week. Which, I mean, a brilliant first week that year. We should just actually yeah, make, make it yeah. required watching for everybody. Just send all of the listeners a DVD of the 1993 tour and just say, right, we're done. <laughs> this is this is all we need to talk about. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose, especially for, uh, for I, I don't know, those with a British interest, like, if it's not for time bonuses, um, I, I, I can't see Mark Cavendish ever wearing the yellow jersey, you know, and that would be, um, uh, you know, that, that, that would be kind of... Um, Sorry, what's the word I'm looking for? It, it would be disappointing for Cavendish. It, it would be uh, an unfortunate gap in his palmares if he if he never got to wear the yellow jersey, and he probably won't if they don't bring back time bonuses in the tour. And uh, like Cerrone is is kind of one of these um, Italians that was only ever um, good in Italy, you know. And there seems to be a lot of these Italians. Like he was unbelievable in the Giro. He won he won 24 stages of the of the Giro, and there's only. A, there's only a handful of riders, one more. There was Cipollini, who has the record, and then there's Alfredo Binda, Liarco Guerra, and Costanti Girardengo. I mean, he, other than those, he has won the most stages in the Giro d'Italia. And uh, obviously, said in the piece, like he won Milan San Remo on the Tour of Lombardy. But um, like as, as far as I know, he only rode the Tour de France once, and that was quite late in his career in 1987, and he abandoned. And, um, but, you know, it, it, it's just... Um, it's a strange one that there's, there's these Italians that stick to riding in Italy, and you, and you never really you never really see them anywhere else. To be honest, he did he did quite well at Goodwood because that's where he won his world championship, um, and well, that's, well, that's that's where I, I mean I, I learned not to really like him as a rider because the man he beat was uh, was my favourite Greg LeMond. But uh, you're yeah. right. I mean, it, in uh, less innocent times, you would question people who only perform well on home soil. Um, another interesting thing about Cerrone was that he was he he won the 1983 Giro obviously, but he also won it in 1979 I think, and um, he was very young when he won it. He was only 21, and um, there's only like only Fausto Coppi and Luigi Marchisio were ever younger. He was third, still the third youngest ever rider to win the Giro, and it just it kind of reminded me of um, Damiano Cunego when he won it in 2004. He was he was 22, yeah, and. Uh, you know, they're similar riders as well, like Kunigo. He's never really capable of sticking with the big ones in the high mountains. He kind of is, but not really. And, he, you know, he's won the Tour of Lombardy a good few times, and he, he's he's this kind of more classic rider than Grand Tour, although he did win the Grand Tour. And it, it kind of, I suppose their careers kind of uh, took different paths after they won their, their respective Giro d'Italia. You know, Cerrone went on and won loads of Giro stages and, and obviously won the World Championships, whereas Canego has never really settled on what type of rider he is. No, and I think that's been to his detriment, and I think it's his problem, as he keeps thinking back, I think, to that Grand Tour win, and has tried to, because that's where the big money is, you know, he's tried to emulate that, but uh, if he'd concentrated on just being a, a great classics rider, I think he would have a, a fuller Permaris than he's ended up with. Yeah, I, I think so too, and and it's also interesting. 
I mean, we're talking about Italians in the classics. Like he's the last Italian to win a monument, and that was the Tour of Lombardy in two thousand and eight, and that's that's the longest um, the Italians have ever gone without winning a monument classic. That's what 15, 16, 19 monuments now have passed without an Italian winner. You kind of wonder where the, the next one will come from. It's I suppose Vincenzo, Vincenzo Nibali has been given it a good go, but uh, there there isn't these, this real uh, school of of great classics uh, Italian classic riders the way there was like with Paolo Bettini and Michele Bartoli and Baldato and yeah. and these guys I mean, there's kind of a bit of a gap there I know Alessandro Balan um, kind of is and, and Pippo Pizzato are always kind of hovering but you'd never really I, I don't think although I know Balan has won the world I don't think you'd describe them as great classics riders No and I always expect them to fail when they go in the attack and I mean that's harsh and I don't mean they're terrible riders because they're clearly up there amongst the best of the best but when they go on an attack, you never think that's it, game over. You know, they've, they've still to climb that final step to greatness. I think. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Now, the other thing is, um, Italians have always had big, big rivalries. Um, you talked about Cerrone uh, and, and Moser. There was uh, Coppi and Bertali. There's nobody really like that just now to excite the Tifosi, is there? No, there isn't really, and I suppose that the. I, I think I've, I've been reading a few previews of the, G- the Giro ad that were actually written before the start list came out and I think um, a lot of people are hoping that there might have been a rivalry between Basso and Nibali you know in, in, in their own amongst their own team obviously they both ride for Likugas yeah. and obviously that's not going to happen because Nibali's not, not riding but uh it, it's like it's like we're clutching for some sort of Italian rivalry that's just not there and um I, I mean, it's it isn't there. I mean, you know, you have a few Italians that are going to be going to be chance for victory, like Scarponi and, and and obviously Basso as well. And uh, I don't know, maybe Pozzovivo might be up there or, or these guys. But there isn't this uh, really really palpable rivalry anywhere in Italian cycling at the moment. And yeah, maybe they are missing it, and and it's to to uh, to their detriment. Now we'll move on to to an earlier era, uh, just after the Second World War. Um, the Giro d'Italia was won by Hugo Cobley, and here's a piece about him. In 1950, Hugo Cobley won the Giro d'Italia and in doing so became the first non-Italian winner of the race. Before 1950, there had been 32 editions of the Giro, won by 18 different Italians. One edition was organised as a team event in 1912, and this was unsurprisingly also won by an Italian team. Cobley had won stages of the Tour de Suisse and Tour de Romandie, but before 1950, he was considered very much a track rider. He was a multiple Swiss champion at the individual pursuit and had won a bronze medal at the track worlds in the same discipline. But on the road, he had yet to prove himself outside of Switzerland. The previous year in 1949, the Giro had been absolutely dominated by Fausto Coppi, who won the race by over 23 minutes to the second place Gino Bartali. Coppi would go on to win the Tour later that year to complete the first ever Giro Tour double. Although Coppi was at the start line in 1950, on the first mountain stage in the Dolomites, he crashed innocuously and broke his pelvis in three places. This crash blew the race for the general classification wide open. Coble had already won a stage, but the decisive moment came on stage 8 to Vicenza, where he attacked and was followed by just two riders, Pascale Fornara and Gino Bartali. But Coble attacked again before the finish, to solo to the victory and take the Maglia Rosa for the first time in his career and he would keep it all the way to the finish in Rome. The win was even more impressive considering that Cobley was one of just 17 non-Italians of the 105 riders that started the race. 
Although there have been many foreign winners since Cobley broke the Italian stranglehold in 1950, it remains a race dominated by the home nation. 13 of the last 15 races have all been won by Italians. He was, uh, I mean, I've only seen footage on uh, YouTube of, of Cobley, but he was he was almost like somebody we'll talk about in a minute, Stephen Roach. He had a, a fantastically smooth pedalling style and was a real stylist on the bike, but only for one or two years, and then his, his career seemed to fizzle out. Yeah, yeah, I, I must confess to not knowing a huge amount about Cobley. I kind of put this piece in just to highlight the Italianness of the Italian race, but I, I do know a couple of things. Like, I know his... His nickname was the Pedaleur de Charme, which yeah. goes along with your, your description of him being like Stephen Roach. He had this really fluid and, and good-looking pedaling style. But, um, yeah, he, he, he kind of reached his, his zenith as a rider in, in 19, He won the Giro in 1950, won the Tour the following year. And then, like you say, he kind of fizzled out. And um, I mean, he, he was this, this good-looking guy, and he... he you know, he was obviously making money and, you know, a bit like Jacques Anquetil, I'd say he was fond of the women and possibly the drugs. And um, he he died prematurely uh, in, in rather strange circumstances. The reports say that he drove into a tree and that he had perhaps done it on purpose, that he had decided to kill himself in this manner, which is very sad. I, I mean, he's certainly not the only cyclist that has... Um, lost the plot or gone off the rails after their abilities abandoned them and they just didn't know what to do well i think the um there's apparently an eyewitness account that he drove past the tree that he finally ended up you know with his car wrapped against a couple of times apparently to get the courage to do it yeah i i know there i I think there are some conflicting reports and it's 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 Interesting, actually, I don't know whether you know the story of the way Costanti Girardengo, who was the first campionissimo, as they called him, that he died in rather strange circumstances. I don't know whether you know that story, do you? No, I don't. <laughs> if not, we might leave it for another week then, because that's a, that's a bit of a, that's, that's an interesting one. What a tease you are, what a tease. <laughs> I, I, I do still think it's unconfirmed, though, that, that he, he actually did that on purpose. I, although I, I, I do know that there is that eyewitness account. But, um, but like I say, it, it, it's... Um, it's kind of indicative of a lot of cyclists that that's it's all they've known for all their lives, and when they can't do it anymore, they um they do lose lose the plot a little bit, and uh, they, their lives lose direction, and and they uh, they really suffer the consequences. Yeah, and he was only thirty nine years old. I mean, that's far too young for somebody who was clearly an immensely talented rider to tend his life. Um, yeah, there's actually a film about him as well, which is a, it's a recent film. It was only made in the last couple of years. It was made by Disney, funnily enough, and it's called Pedalor de Charme. And um, I, from what I gather, I haven't seen it. It's uh, it's in French. I, I'm not sure where you can get a subtitled version, but um, it, it's kind of mixed footage of documentary versus uh, a dramatization of his life. So I'd say that could be a, a, an interesting watch if you can get your hands on it. It's available on DVD, I think. Anyway, this whole programme's clearly been um, leading up to the fact that you wanted to squeeze another Irish anecdote in. Let's have a listen to you talk about um, a hero of both of ours, I think, Stephen Roach. In 1987, Stephen Roach's Carrera team won the team time trial at the Giro d'Italia, which put the Irishman into the pink jersey. Roach had been signed by Carrera for the start of the 1986 season and was awarded a fat contract but a knee injury meant Roach was consistently poor throughout 1986 and didn't win a single race. The fact that Roach was on such a big contract and was simply not delivering results did not sit well with his Italian teammates. The leader of the Carrera team for the 1987 Giro was the Italian Roberto Vicentini, who had won the race the previous year. 
With both Roach and Vicentini on the team, the team directors had asked Roach to help Vicentini to win the Giro and Vicentini would return the favour for Roach at the Tour. But Roach had learned that Vicentini had already booked a holiday throughout July and had no intention of even riding the Tour. So the 1987 Giro began with both riders already at odds. It was a ding-dong battle between the teammates from the very start, as Vicentini won the opening prologue. Roach then won an 8km downhill time trial the following day. Then came the team time trial win for Carrera, which put Roach in pink. But another time trial win on stage 13 put Vicentini back in the lead. Then on stage 15 came the most controversial moment of the race, as Roach, just 2 minutes 42 seconds behind Vicentini, attacked and was joined by two others at the front, Ennio Salvador and Jean-Claude Bagot. While in the leading breakaway, Roach's director sportif David Boifava pulled up alongside him in the team car and said, Hey Stephen, what are you doing? Just riding along, Roach replied, waiting for the other teams to ride after me. But Stephen, the other teams are not chasing you. Well then, that's their bad luck. If they're going to let me take 20 minutes, they'll lose and Carrera will win. But if you keep riding, you will take 20 minutes and win the Giro. That's what I want, said Roach. Stephen, Vicentini has the jersey. You cannot do this to Vicentini. Some team is sure to ride after me. Just wait a minute. Boifava then replied, Stephen, the Carrera team is riding after you. This farcical scenario played out and Roach was eventually caught by his own team. But remarkably, he had the strength to go with a counter-attack. The mental stress was obviously getting to Vicentini and this manifested itself in him cracking physically on the final climb, eventually losing six minutes to Roach who had taken back the jersey. The Tafossi immediately turned against Roach. The only riders who he had to support him for the remainder of the race were his loyal teammate Eddie Shapers and the Scot Robert Miller. But Roach steadfastly hung on to the jersey, which he sealed in splendid fashion with victory in the final stage time trial. Miller eventually finished second overall, while Vicentini abandoned, complaining of an injury. So Stephen Roach, hero or villain in that, uh, that Giro? He was definitely a hero in Irish eyes because he won it and... You know, at the end of the day, that's the thing pe- people most remember. I mean, his name's on the on the winners list, but certainly from an Italian point of view, he was the villain. And I mean, to, to do what he did, I mean, it, it it is the way that champions do their thing. They're headstrong. They're unbelievably self confident, yeah. and they uh, they they don't they don't really care what other people think. I mean, they they see the victory and they go for it. But uh, I, I mean, I've read his book, The Agony and the Ecstasy, which came out shortly after that year. And uh, in it, he's very contradictory. Sometimes he says that he wasn't um, riding for the Giro win, that he was riding for Vicentini to make the Carrera team, uh, to, to give the Carrera team a break and to make all the other teams chase him because he was still a threat on GC. But then in other places, like the little dialogue that he had with Boifava in the car, he, he admitted that he wanted to win the Giro. So, I mean, he, he, he does have this... He does seem to have this attitude that no matter what he's saying, whether he's contradicting himself or not, he, he, he seems to think that he's right and everybody else is a bit of an idiot. He, he, he seems to have had that, uh, that seems to have come across a little bit in his mo- most recent comments. I don't know whether you've seen these. Oh yeah, we talked, we talked about it this week's show. He sounds like a, a kind of man sitting in a bar opining about stuff to do with cycling. Oh, it's, it's, it, it, it's, it's embarrassing really, the, the stuff that he's come out with there and you know, it, it's it's kind of blindingly obvious now that he does have another book on the way. You know, <laughs> it, it, it seems to be a good way for people to go. Jesus, Roach is saying that kind of stuff. I wonder what else he's saying in his book. You yeah, know? I, I so, think you're being cynical there. It's clearly just uh, honestly expressed opinion. Now, the thing that gets me about the '87 tour 
or Chiro rather. As it reminds me almost of the the nineteen eighty nine tour because Roach, it was essentially one man against Italy in the way that in eighty nine it was Le Monde essentially on his own without a team. So that's another example of the incredibly strong head that he must have had to have an entire nation hating him and still flip them the finger every day and go out and win the race. Yeah, and, and the fact that he had that teammate, Eddie Shepherds, is is kind of um it's interesting in a bit of a wider context. Like I I know now there's a lot of um a lot of debate about this UCI point system that uh, that's being used, and uh, you know each team has to have a certain amount of points to qualify for a pro tour license, and and um, a lot of people are wondering, well, what's the point of being a domestique anymore? Why would you work for a leader? Give the leader so as the leader gets loads of points, and you end up with nothing. And on paper, you're 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 worthless when yeah. it comes to transfer season because you haven't got any points because you spent all your time working for someone else. Mm. But I, I remember um, Sean Kelly years ago. He was asked about this this same um, system, and I think it was actually the Coffetis team at the time that David Miller was a part of used points as a bonus system for their wages. Mm-hmm. And uh, Kelly was asked about this, which is a very similar system to what's used now, and. Um, he said that the idea or, or, or what happened was, say in, in Roach's um, scenario, that Roach would get offered a fat contract and he would say to the next team, uh, OK, fine, I've got loads of UCI points and um, hire me, but you're not hiring me if you don't hire Shepherds. And, and there, would this, there would become this loyalty of um, domestiques and, and leaders. And, and if, if leaders were being brought onto teams because they've got loads of points, then they would bring their, their loyal lieutenants, pointless loyal lieutenants with them. And that's the way it works. I don't, I don't, I don't really see that working now, but that was Kelly's idea of, of what happened at that time. Yeah, and I think it's interesting as well that it, a, part, a big part of that win was the loyalty that he'd built with his teammates back at the, the ACBB. Because Robert Miller and I think Phil Anderson as well, who'd been his teammates there, were amongst the only other riders who were kind of riding for him during the race. Yeah, and it's remarkable that Robert Miller did that because Robert Miller, like I said, was in second place. I mean, you know, he could have potentially uh, won that Giro. You know, if he had attacked, he he was he was a better climber than Roach. So I mean, there was opportunity to take time off him, and instead he he you know he shepherded him up the mountains, which is uh, unbelievably uh, admirable. And, or lucrative, uh, I mean, whichever way you look at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, definitely, yeah. But uh, I suppose that's just the that's just the way cycling was, or maybe you know, still is to to an extent that uh, these favors get dished out um, regardless of what team you're on. But uh, it's just uh, you know, just going back to Vicentini. Like I know, I know um, him as a person. He was, I, I gather, he was from a very rich background, and. Uh, that he he wasn't really one of these hard men that with uh, real real tough tough cycling races and obviously he won the Giro in 1986 but as soon as he uh, as soon as he was subjected to the psychological warfare um, that that Roach made him go through he was never the same after he never won another race um, after 1987 and he was never the same and uh, he eventually called it a day but you know. Whereas other riders would have unbelievable incentive to win races and and uh, get get money under their belts, he he had he had none of that um, financial insecurity and and maybe maybe didn't uh, didn't quite have the hunger that other Italians and other other racers of all nationalities had, which the, was uh, the other thing to think about. I mean, talking about hunger there is after. I mean, this is clearly the year that defined Roach's career. Yeah. 
afterwards, he never seemed the same rider to me. And is it just because he'd, he'd done everything he'd set out to do, or do you think he took so much, he dug so deep that year, that he's... I mean, he had a, a reputation for a frail body, that it just took so much out of him that he was never the same rider ever again. Well, I know he got injured as well. He he, he got I mentioned in the piece he got injured in 1986. That was a, a knee injury. I can't quite remember how he got it in the first place. But uh, it was a track... Oh, no, sorry. Wait till I get this right. Um, I think he fell on the track. I think he said maybe that was after, but Yeah, he, he hurt his knee, and he, 1986 was a write-off. And then just before 1988, he, uh, he he did it again. He injured his the same knee. Um, maybe maybe the second time was on the track. But anyway, he injured it twice. And uh, he um, I, I think it was really that, that he, he was never the same again. I'm not sure whether it was because he just dug too deep in 1987. Maybe it had, maybe it had something to do with it. But um, he, he, I suppose he suffered from this classic rainbow jersey complex that when, once you once you win the rainbow jersey, you want to race everywhere and show it off wherever you can. And he ended up riding on the track where he was he injured himself and suffered the consequences, and definitely was never the same. Now, last question before we wrap up for this show: Axel Merckx, I think, carved a decent career for himself in spite of who his dad was. Nicholas yeah. Roach, I think, if he could forget who his dad was, would have a far better Palmares than he does now. Do you think he should just accept that he isn't his dad and get on with winning one-week stage races? Yeah, yeah. Well, definitely, I do. I think he should stop focusing on Grand Tour GC. I, I don't think he's ever going to. Uh, I don't think he's ever going to crack the podium. Maybe the Vuelta might give him the opportunity simply because there's there's less decent riders turn up for the Vuelta <laughs> with an interest that he might have a chance of making the podium. But the Tour de France, I think he can forget it, and I I, I think it has less to do. Well, obviously, it has something to do with it, but it's not only the fact that he's Stephen Roach's son. It's just the fact that he hasn't, like Damiano Cunego that we talked about earlier, hasn't made up his mind what what he's doing, and he he goes he goes into Grand Tours and he kind of thinks to himself, I oh, you know I'll give GC a go if I if I don't find myself high up on GC after the first two weeks, I'll hunt stages in the last week, and you can't really do that. I don't think you can, you have to go into the Grand the Grand Tour with either one or the other. And if you're going in with, sta- with stage wins in mind, lose 20 minutes in the first week, lose an hour in the first week, totally. and then start going to stages. And, and that's the way to do it. Whereas what he does now is, he, he, you know, he hovers about seven, eight minutes behind the leader, which is probably too, too close to the leader to be allowed up the road. But he, he never allows himself to drop down that little bit further. So he just ends up in 15th place and without free reign to go for stage wins, which is this absolute no man's land. And um, I, I fear he's going to be doing that for the rest of his career because I mean, he, he's not 23 anymore. I think he's, I think he's, I think he might be 27 or 28 in in the summer. He turns his birthday is during the tour. I think he might turn 20, 28. And um, time's running out. Time is, yeah. He needs to decide now. I, I mean, he's only got maybe five more years at the top of his game. And uh, he 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 needs to make a decision one way or the other, and not go into grand tours with this split mentality because it's not working. Anyway, I think that's enough for people for this week because I've no doubt we'll pop up a couple of times during the Giro. If you enjoy it, please please um, leave a comment on iTunes because it really helps people find us. You can follow Killian on uh, Twitter, where his name is. Sorry, it's 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 Irish Peloton, and it's not the Irish Peloton, which John seems to have everybody believing for the last few episodes. That's why I keep getting... I'll just get yourself to say it from now on, because I've got it in my head that it's the... So it's Irish Peloton. 
I'm yeah. at Sofa Boy. Um, and if you want to leave a donation, you can go to velocast.cc, click the donate button, and let us know that you want part of it to be for Killian, because we need to keep him in Guinness. We'll talk to you very soon about the Giro, and thanks for listening to episode 10 of This Week in Cycling History.